Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Tap, tap, tap. Check one, two, one. Two. It's amazing how many people involved in audio don't seem to be able to count beyond two, isn't it? We're doing that because the studio has changed significantly since you were last here, even in the last week since we last did an episode of The Blind Side podcast. Talking to you with a brand new, very elaborate mixer board in front of me, I have finally replaced the tried and true faithful Axel digital broadcast console that I've had since 2000. And I thought I might do a bit of a demo, but I thought that doesn't really fit with the whole thing that we're trying to do in the Blindside podcast. Um, mixer boards is a pretty geeky kind of subject, isn't it? But I will talk about it very briefly. I did have a broadcast console. It was designed specifically for radio work. And so it had things like a couple of telephone hybrids where you could put phone calls to air. This was a board made by an Italian company called Axel Digital. And I sourced it from a supplier of broadcast equipment in New Zealand. And it served me well. It's still going fine. And when I think of all that I have done with that board in the last 16 years, all the ACB radio things, 10 years of FSCast, which I do in another capacity, of course, all the Mushroom FM things, it's just amazing. All the things I've recorded with my kids, I found it remarkably difficult to let go of the technology. And yet I knew that it was time. These days, we don't really use telephone hybrids anymore. What's really important is that you have technology to put Skype calls to air efficiently and FaceTime calls and anything VoIP, really. And I wanted to get a mixer board that had more features in the audio production arena. But also, that old board of mine, sounds like an old Cole Porter song or something, that old board of mine was picking up a lot of electromagnetic interference as we put more and more computerized devices here in the studio. So it was a difficult decision and it was time to let it go. And in my typical kind of fashion, I really threw myself into this task. But when you consider that, I don't think there's another piece of technology I was using that's 16 years old, you know, it's it's done me well. And I suppose it's a little bit like a sighted person might feel when it comes to upgrading a car, because it's going to last me hopefully a long time. In my line of work, I use the mixer board a lot. It had to be something I was comfortable with. So I read a lot. I asked around what people were using. I narrowed it down to three contenders. And when I narrowed it down to those three, I read the user guides from cover to cover. I went and read all the reviews I could find, looked at the knowledge bases, various forums on audio, and finally arrived at this. I'll hold it up to the mic. No, it's actually a bit big to hold up to the mic. But it is an Allen & Heath Z22FX. Designed in the United Kingdom, made in China. How's that for multilateral? And it does make me smile because the Z is spelt Z-E-D or Z-E-D. So even Americans have to pronounce it Z. They've got no choice. So I thought that was a pretty cool trick. This is a pretty nice board. It's got 22 channels, as the name implies. Some of those are stereo, some of them are mono. It's got USB, so we can connect the computer straight to the desk and get pure digital from there. It essentially acts as a sound card for both input and output. It's got uh, a whole bunch of auxiliary buses for those who are interested in that sort of thing. And it's pretty impressive for the uninitiated. You know, it kind of looks like the cockpit of a 747 when you look at all the controls and the knobs. It's all logically laid out. It's all accessible. 
And as the name implies, when we hear the name Z22FX, it does have an effects processor, which means that we can do epic things of enormous proportion. I mean, <laughs> a bit of fun for audio production and stuff like that. So it's the new toy. And it's been an experience for me because most of the time I'm dealing with computerized technology that is accessible. It's got some sort of screen reader on it. And this is an analog mixer. It is not a digital mixer, but I do need to know where all the buttons are. So I got my two oldest kids to help me put it together and also to help me write a cheat sheet. So I now know the order of all the controls, all the buttons, what they do. And now it's just a case of committing it to memory because, man, I had that board for such a long time that it really is muscle memory working the old board so everything feels unfamiliar and new so let's see what sort of a hash we can make of this week's podcast feel the need to sound off share your thoughts about this week's show by email send an audio file or write it down and email the blind side at mosin.org i believe that this nation should commit itself crazy Decades of magic mushroom memories. Mushroom FM. We're focusing this week on the Blindside podcast on the World Blind Union's Quadrennial General Assembly, which has just concluded in Orlando, Florida. First, we'll have a recap on proceedings with Dan Fry, who was in attendance for much of the WBU General Assembly. And then we'll hear from the incoming president of the World Blind Union, Dr. Fred Schroeder, who is a well-known figure around the world. He's been a long-term advocate for Braille, wrote a great dissertation on Braille as part of his PhD, and he's also a blind O&M instructor. He was the former commissioner of rehabilitation services in the United States during the Clinton administration. I think we go all the way back to then for his tenure as commissioner. So a great leader in our community, and we'll hear a particularly interesting and inspiring address from him. So WBU is the focus on The Blind Side this week. And now, stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. The World Blind Union has concluded its quadrennial General Assembly. This time it took place in Orlando, Florida, resulting in the election of Dr. Fred Schroeder as president of the World Blind Union for the next four years. Our U.S. correspondent for The Blind Side, Dan Fry, was in attendance for part of the WBU General Assembly, and we touch base with him now. Welcome back to The Blind Side podcast. Dan, touch base? It's a good American kind of term, isn't it? It is. It makes yeah. me think of T- baseball. Have you attended WBU before? This is my uh, first time to attend a quadrennial general assembly. Um, obviously, I have followed um, the international work of the WBU since its founding in 1984 and its initial meeting in Saudi Arabia, but um, it's the first opportunity I've had to attend one. And so when I observed that the ninth quadrennial general assembly would occur here in the U.S., I thought that if I don't attend this one, I may not have another chance. 
This was a big deal, and it signifies a change over time with respect to the way that the NFB has felt about the WBU, because I'm sure that you can remember, as can I, articles in the 1990s in the Braille Monitor, where essentially the NFB were very sceptical about whether the WBU had any value. And since then, they changed their position on that and really have embraced WBU and been a big supporter of their endeavours. The NFB's position on the international blindness community has evolved over time, Jonathan, and I think has somewhat been determined by um, the level of uh, involvement that the NFB could have in the exercise of the organization's work. As you might historically know, Dr. Tinbrook, uh, Jacobus Tinbrook, the founder of the NFB uh, back in the 1940s, was one of the founding members of the International Federation of the Blind in 1964. And it was in 1984 that the International Federation of the Blind and the International Council on the Welfare of the Blind came together to create the World Blind Union, a uh, consolidation of organizations that uh, serve the blind and are uh, consumer organizations. So Dr. Tinbrook was certainly a strong proponent of uh, being involved at an international level. Dr. Isabel Grant, a blind woman, uh, a pioneer of her time in terms of being a blind teacher, but also a female who traveled extensively in the Middle East uh, um, became a strong proponent of the work of the International Federation of the Blind. And then, as you observe, um, for a while, the NFB had reservations about the effectiveness of the World Blind Union, pointing largely to the bureaucratic and slow pace of the activity and the deliberative process that the WB used. If anyone hasn't been involved in observing international deliberations, the WB, the WBU, like all non-governmental organizations in the international context, uses uh, a fairly formal and um, uh, gradual uh, means of engaging in deliberation. And it was thought by some leaders of the NFB, that it simply wasn't effective. There was also the view that there wasn't um, a lot of stability in terms of management. It did not have an office until in 2006 um, under the leadership of then WBU President William Rowland from South Africa. A formal office was created in the uh, uh, headquarters of the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. After 2006, a level of stability uh, started to emerge, and it seemed more likely that the WBU would be uh, an instrument for achieving greater success. We started having conversations about the um, Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the Marrakesh Treaty, which allows international sharing of 
formats that are inaccessible means without going through copyright laws in each nation. And I think when the NFB saw that those two national uh, efforts, along with the uh, silent or hybrid car issue, which has, has to be addressed at the international level, were going to be things that needed to be dealt with, I think leaders came to realize that an international instrument with an effective voice was was important. I suppose it was always going to take some time to bed down this coalition, essentially, between organisations for the blind and organisations of the blind at an international level and sort that out. But then also there's such a disparity in terms of the issues that are important to blind people around the world. And you mentioned international treaties and conventions, which really have, I think, given the WBU a sense of focus and a sense of purpose. But I'm sure, as you will have observed, having just sat through some of the General Assembly, you've got people who are dealing with high-tech issues, such as the accessibility of mobile apps and uh, computer applications. You've got people who are dealing with civil rights issues relating to, say, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people in developing countries who are dealing with day-to-day issues like how to even get hard copy braille texts or white canes you know for some of those guys the white cane is the technology they're most desperate for so it's an enormously big tent isn't it with a lot of different drivers involved there absolutely true um one of the things that i observed in this general assembly was that uh the point that you make that the that the tent is big and that the areas of interest are quite diverse and quite desperate are really true. The General Assembly spent a lot of time assuring developing countries that it would not get consumed by essentially first world problems and Mm. would in fact concentrate on issues that are critical to blind and vision impaired people in in developing nations. Um, One session focused on violence and refugee issues, particularly as you might have heard in the mainstream media about Syria and how blind people are simply trying to cope living day-to-day life where other sessions talked about different approaches to, to vocational rehabilitation and talked about the most progressive kinds of attitudes to deal with subminimum wages. And so you do observe a broad array of interests and a measure of tension between organizations that deal with issues of survival as opposed to issues of comfort and luxury. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's a potential issue, isn't it, for the WBU in that obviously now they have uh, Fred Schroeder, who has a long pedigree within the NFB, also involved in the uh, rehabilitation system in the United States. And he is steeped in the philosophy of the NFB. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have these fundamental issues. I suppose you have to tread carefully in the WBU so that it doesn't seem like the philosophy that resonates so well with so many people in the first world doesn't seem almost just like a a completely irrelevant pipe dream when people in developing countries are dealing with these day-to-day problems. I think that's right. You observe that in 
some of the practices of the WBU during the General Assembly. They, in the course of registering, invite delegates to bring guides, which reflects the fact that they acknowledge that not everybody has had the opportunity to acquire good blindness skills. They have a lot of assistance in the course of the um, assembly for people who need support in getting food and making their way around a hotel that for many from some aspect of some areas of the world would seem like a palace. Um, I like to think though, and I think I observed that those in the developed countries were fairly respectful of the fact that um, not everyone has um, what we have here. And Fred Schroeder in particularly, um, because of his international involvement for so many years and just because of his tendency to be a person who is sensitive and compassionate, I think is going to be able to bring together those those varying points of view and will ensure that the needs of both um, constituencies are, are cared for. The World Blind Union is like the United Nations of the blind community, and they even use terms like General Assembly. And just as it's said that it's Eastern Europe's turn for the Secretary Generalship of the UN this year, and uh, there is a New Zealander in the process who has something to say about that, but there's sort of a protocol. And this assembly took place in Florida, in the United States, with the expectation that Dr. Schroeder would be elected and that it was sort of North America's turn for the presidency. Is that somewhat undemocratic or does that just reflect the amount of planning that has to go into obtaining the presidency of an organization like the WBU? I like to think it's the latter. The democratic character of the WBU was definitely on display uh, during the course of the last uh, week when you saw that four candidates initially were vying for the position of second vice president and several candidates were seeking the position of treasurer. And I also recall that when Marianne Diamond of Australia was elected WBU president several quadrennial assemblies back, she was not initially contemplating running for that position. So um, I think there is there is a measure of democracy in the organization. I think, though, that you accurately point out that the role of the WBU president is one that is quite demanding and you don't find a lot of people of Fred's caliber or the caliber that you would want in an international leader able to devote that kind of time. No one challenged Fred, but I think not because of a fear of running as much as a recognition that undertaking the international leadership of the WBU, given the contemporary issues that have to be addressed in the next four years, uh, are going to be pretty demanding and uh, compelling to undertake. What do you think the focus of the next four years will be for the WBU? I think that Fred hopes to bring together the diverse members of the WBU to talk about what we can uh, achieve in terms of international civil rights 
and through the continued ratification by countries of the um, CRPD, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, there has to be a lot of attention still paid to the Marrakesh Treaty. They've now just hired uh, a human rights officer, a gentleman from Argentina who will be on the WBU staff, and I think that efforts towards human rights are going to govern. And I think that uh, Fred will, given his philosophical affinity for the Federation's point of view, will certainly want to promote, without partisanship, the notion that, that blind people, given, given opportunity, given training, can live successful lives. I do think it will be a more consumer-focused four years than it will be an organization that deals with um, service provision. One of the resolutions adopted at this General Assembly actually made it clear that where financial aid was available, that it needed to be given to um, blind consumers who were affiliated with consumer organizations of blind people instead of service-providing service organizations. I'd be interested in the dynamic at the international level because a lot of people know that sometimes there is some tension between the ACB and NFB in the US. When you get to that international level, does it go beyond that in the sense that people are coalescing for their country or is there still some philosophical tension that is evident in discussions? I can't speak with absolute certainty to whether or not any of that tension exists, except I can say this. One day of the General Assembly in the afternoon, each of the six regions of the World Blind Union break out uh, and have regional conversations. During the North American Caribbean region session uh, on Sunday afternoon, you had in the room newly elected uh, president of the NFB, Mark Riccobono, and Mary Ellen Jernigan, along with Mark Maurer, and ACB president Kim um, Charlson and her husband, and Vice President Mitch Pomerantz, former ACB president, Mitch's vice president of the North American Caribbean region. And all of these people spent time talking about what we could do within the region to support the work of the international organization. And I don't know if it was orchestrated this way, but... Um, Mark Riccobono nominated Mitch, and Mitch um, nominated Mark. There seemed to be a level of civility when dealing with international issues and a real desire to um, not concentrate on the domestic differences that have existed, but to positively put forth a good foot uh, for the American, North American region of the, of the World Blind Union. We've covered this in the podcast before. There's some great language in the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, but of course enforcing it once you get down to the jurisdiction that's enacted it is the challenge. Was there any discussion about that in terms of, you know, has, have, have expectations been set very high with the lofty and positive language of the Convention, but when it actually comes to enforcing that and getting governments to comply, even when they have ratified there's the challenge. Absolutely. A lot of conversation about that. You often get a country, in fact, it was said that a lot of the uh, Latin American countries are 
almost always inclined to sign any treaty or convention that they can put their name on, but rarely do they honor the uh, principles outlined in those treaties. And um, I think one of the objectives of the WBU will be to try and get countries who actually agree to ratify an, in- an international instrument to, to mean it. There's been some criticism of the United States for not signing the um, CRP. Uh, I would have thought that would have been an extraordinarily embarrassing position to be in. I was embarrassed um, at a personal level, um, but, you know, the rationale is that, and it's not a rationale with which I personally agree, but the rationale was that the Americans with Disabilities Act is largely reflective of what the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities says, and that there isn't a lot of difference. I think being transparent, the real reason that we haven't signed it is that there is reluctance by Republicans in the United States to be subject to any kind of international instrument for fear that they are going to be governed by a global community. And while the Democrats might be inclined to do it in principle, if they can avoid a contest of conversation about the global community uh, during an election year when there is uh, such polarization, they're probably not going to make it an issue if, if it's something that can be avoided for a while. Yeah, and it comes down to what does it mean, doesn't it? I mean, the ADA, obviously, if, if, if you find some measure that is in violation of the ADA, some practice, then you do have quite clearly defined ways of pursuing that. And again, I come back to the point that the convention is a wonderful lofty instrument, but how do you actually ensure that your government complies? And if you know that they're not complying, and we have a situation here in New Zealand right now, which actually you'll be interested in because the latest proposal is to take the Braille away from taxis because they're... Yes, I was hearing that. Yeah, they're they're expanding the definition of small passenger transport vehicle to, I guess, put Uber and similar outfits under some sort of regulatory framework. But in the process of doing that, they're saying, okay, well, we'll encourage you to put Braille on your doors so that a blind person can identify the taxi that they're in or the vehicle that they're in, but it's not going to be mandatory anymore. To my mind, that is a gross and blatant violation of the UN Convention to take accessibility away. It's an extraordinary thing. And, you, you know, what, what are you going to do? I mean, what, what can actually be done about that in a practical sense? I think in a practical sense, Jonathan, it's very difficult. Um, international law, unlike uh, national law, is much more uh, nebulous much more abstract, and the entities that do enforce uh, conventions have to have all parties consent to their authority, and many parties simply won't. Uh, And I think that's just inherent in the nature of of international law. It It is a law that is much harder to enforce because you have to have sovereign nations agree. And when sovereign nations are pushed into a corner and do not want to be subject to international law, they simply can ignore it. Um, uh, You will observe that a lot of the venues, the International Criminal Court, rarely has an occasion to exercise its authority because so many nations 
simply um, refused to be subject to its jurisdiction. Are there any other resolutions that were adopted at the General Assembly that you think are particularly noteworthy? You know, the WBU resolutions process is fairly informal. Nine resolutions were brought to the attention of the resolutions committee. Six made it to the floor. Three were discarded as not being matters that were of competent jurisdiction under the WBU's uh, framework. One resolution of consequence was to invite the executive committee of WBU to revisit the dues structure of the organization, uh, so very much an internal administrative matter. There was a lot of debate about that resolution because uh, many people felt that this issue was resolved fairly equitably at the 2008 General Assembly. Um, of the 196 uh, member nations, uh, 44 are currently not financial and are not paying dues. And the existing dues structure within the organization does have accommodation planks that permit the WBU leadership to forgive dues membership for countries who can demonstrate that they are challenged. But Japan thought that the uh, provisions that exist were not sufficient and was a strong advocate for revisiting the way that the uh, dues situation would be managed. There was a second resolution promoting an effort to attract more youth uh, into the work of the WBU. Yeah, with the exception um, of the Federation, which seems to be doing very well in that regard, youth involvement in consumer organizations is a real big deal around the world. I think that's right, and uh, and I think that is primarily why that resolution came forward. The other resolutions were not terribly consequential, uh, in my opinion. They tended, again, to be inward-looking sorts of resolutions. They weren't the kind of policy resolutions that you would hear about ordinarily from, from consumer organizations of the blind in, in, in this country. The WBU did adopt 10 amendments to its constitution. They were fairly technical amendments, which were required to be adopted by the fact that the headquarters of the WBU sits in Canada. And in order for the WBU, which is a non-governmental organization recognized by the UN, to uh, have its headquarters in Canada, there were certain Canadian standards of corporate protocol that had to be honored. And so it was generally understood that the 10 amendments were were being adopted largely to comply with Canadian law and to make it possible for the WBU to keep its headquarters in Canada. Penny Harton, who is the executive uh, officer of the WBU and who used to work for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind and who was instrumental in making sure that Canada was the uh, office headquarters for WBU, announced that she would be retiring between now and the next General Assembly in four years. So I wondered personally if the WBU would continue to have its offices in Canada, but I infer from the adoption of these 10 amendments that even with her retirement, that there is uh, some plan to, I guess for continuity's sake, to keep the WBU administrative offices based out of the CNIB offices in Canada.
Were there any other highlights of the General Assembly that you wanted to convey to the audience? There were a number of sessions that concentrated on issues that are occurring in the mainstream world. So challenges for women, challenges for refugees. It really did feel as though you were sitting in an assembly that was dealing with the contemporary current issues of the day. War-torn regions wanted to talk about the implications for, for blind people. I guess the other thing that I would say that I thought was significant was that there appeared to be a real effort to have some diversity uh, among the table officers um, of the World Blind Union. Martine Abel Williamson from New Zealand is now the new WBU treasurer. The uh, secretary general is a gentleman from India. The second vice president is, I believe, a woman from a country in Africa, along with Fred. And so it's certainly a diverse group of people, and I think that was a positive thing. Uh, And the last thing I would say that was, I think, compelling was the conference, for the second time in its history, worked in concert and operated jointly with the International Council on the Education for People with Vision Impairment, ISVI. And so, in addition to the broad array of issues that the WBU has dealt with, there was quite a focus on K-12 education when the ISV delegates joined the WBU delegates halfway through the week. It's a humbling process, I think, isn't it? Because we must continue to move forward and strive for better conditions here in our context, but it also does give you pause for thought to appreciate what we have. Absolutely. I left incredibly aware of how fortunate people in first world countries are, and yet did not want to be patronizing to people who live in third world or developing countries um, because they operate with a, a great degree of dignity. But I enjoy an embarrassment of riches where I have uh, a computer with speech and a couple of um, note takers and a couple of iPhones on my desk and others live in the world happy to have their slate and stylus. It's uh, the, the disparity in access to material goods um, is in fact very humbling. Are you fascinated by unusual music or sounds? Or maybe you'd just like to hear something different for a change. This is Tom Decker, a.k.a. The Wolfman, eager to share with you a diverse musical collection that I've been sniffing out over many years. From every genre, anytime, and anywhere, I've got something for anyone. So, have a listen, get background info, and join the discussion. It's as easy as sending an email to tom at mushroomfm.com or following Wolfman Tom, that's W-O-O-F Man Tom, on Twitter, including the Mushroom FM hashtag, of course. Join me for Wolfman's World Music, Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern, here on the home of the fun guys, Mushroom FM. Earlier this week, Bonnie Mosen held her second virtual job club meeting. This is in conjunction with her very popular book that she published a few months back called It's Off to Work We Go. It's a practical guide 
for blind job seekers. And the feedback that we're getting from that is that people really enjoy the chatty conversational style and the many very useful tips about the process of searching for a job, applying for a job, acing the job interview, and then even progressing to once you've been offered the job and you're in the job, how you blend in, how you make sure that you're given what you need to succeed in the job. The book is available on the Mosin Consulting website. And in addition to getting the book, so you can read it in whatever format you choose, you're also then entitled to participate in the virtual job club, which meets approximately monthly. In the job club this week, we discussed inaccessible workplaces in terms of when you get that job and the technology that you want to use isn't accessible. How do you deal with that? Or indeed, if you're applying for a job and you find that the job application process itself isn't accessible. It's a frustrating process because it could be your dream job and yet you're being excluded from applying because of some sort of technological snafu. So it was a great conversation with people from all around the world who shared their experience, their frustration and also their solutions. If you are a job seeker or you're in work and you're looking to upskill or get a better gig, then have a look at Bonnie's book. It's off to work we go. Lots of information and the ability to purchase it and download it right away after you've made your purchase on mosin.org work. That's mosin.org work. Our place, our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosin. As we heard from Dan Fry in the previous discussion, Dr. Frederick K. Schroeder is now the president of the World Blind Union. His term began when the Quadrennial General Assembly concluded. Dr. Schroeder is an inspiring speaker with an excellent grounding in blindness philosophy, and he's made an immense contribution to the blind community around the world. Let's go to Monday's session at the World Blind Union General Assembly for some remarks from Dr. Schroeder. It is a real pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. Many of the remarks that you have heard resonate with my own story. I want to begin by saying that when we look at the challenges facing blind people, it is very easy to catalog the challenges in terms of the mechanics. In other words, difficulty getting access to a good education, difficulty in getting uh, access to employment, even at very entry levels. But those lack of opportunities in many respects are symptomatic of the greater problem that we face, and that is low expectations. Society views us as broken people. They don't harbor ill will toward us, but they see us as very damaged, as broken people, people who are very limited in the ability to carry out even the most basic day-to-day activities. And so with that as the underlying assumption, opportunities are limited. I lost most of my vision when I was seven years old. And I went through public school in the United States without any special education support. But more tragically, no blind role models. And all I remember about my childhood as a blind person was being told what I could not do. 
Since I didn't see well enough to read print, I was excused from all reading, writing, and math in the curriculum. Now, if you think about your education, if you take reading, writing, and math out of the education, there is precious little left. So I had a terrible education, a very incomplete education. However, one thing I did learn, and that is I learned to feel inferior. When I was in 10th grade, I had to take a biology class. And part of that biology class involved a lab experiment dissecting a frog. The way the exercise was structured is that the class was divided into groups of two. And the dissection was divided up into two parts. And so when the dissection would begin, one student would do the first half of the dissection while the other student recorded what was being discovered. And midway through, they would switch roles. So both students got the opportunity to participate in the dissection. Well, in my class, we were divided into groups of two, except there was one group that had three people in it. That was my group. And that meant I sat behind the other two students while they did the experiment. So I did not learn anything about dissecting a frog. Now, you might think, so what? How important is it to dissect a frog? But what I did learn is a feeling of inferiority. I assumed that I could not do what others were able to do and that I could not do it because of blindness. I lost all of my vision when I was 16, and I was very fortunate. I went to an adult rehabilitation center in California, and there I learned the techniques that I would need to be able to function as a blind person. And Karen Kenninger spoke about these skills the blindness skills, the ability to read and write Braille, the ability to travel independently using a white cane, the ability to cook and to clean your house and take care of your day-to-day needs. But the most fortunate part was I met other blind people. As many of you know, for all of my adult life, I have been actively involved in a consumer organization in the United States, the host organization for this General Assembly, the National Federation of the Blind. And it was through the Federation that I began to recognize that the limitations that I thought were because of blindness were socially constructed limitations. In other words, they were limitations that came from low expectations And I had internalized those low expectations. A friend of mine, well, the day I met him, uh, he was involved in some legislative work. And he wanted me to contact him the next week. So he said, let me give you my telephone number. I want you to call me next week. 
And I said, I have no way of writing down your telephone number. And he said, don't you know how to read Braille? And I had learned Braille. I said, yes. He said, do you know how to use a slate and stylus? I said, yes, but I don't have one with me. He said, if you're sighted, you don't need to carry a pen because there are sighted people everywhere and somebody will have a pen. But if you're blind, you have to carry a slate and stylus because if you don't, the odds that all the sighted people around you will have slates and styluses is pretty low. (laughs) So, by the way, to this day, I carry a slate and stylus in my bag. What was he doing? What he was doing in a gentle way was saying, quit acting helpless. Quit assuming that you cannot do things because of blindness. That support system was absolutely critical in shaping my career goals. I wanted to be a teacher of blind children. And so I went through my university training and did well. And I began to see that what was limiting so many of us was the consequence of stereotypes or misunderstanding about blindness, more so than the functional aspect of blindness. I graduated with my master's degree in 1978. Some of you weren't born in 1978. Um, At that time in the U.S., blind children were being educated in integrated schools. Not all blind children, but the move was very strong toward integrated education. And many of the school systems were looking for teachers who could teach the academic subjects, but who also could teach orientation and mobility. In other words, a school system might only have three or four blind children, and they didn't want to hire a teacher to teach academics and then hire an orientation and mobility specialist. And so many of the students in my graduate program were getting certified to teach orientation and mobility along with their regular teacher certification. Well, I wanted a job, and I thought that would prepare me best for a job. But at that time in the United States, the university training programs did not accept blind people to learn to be orientation and mobility instructors. Well, it's a very long story, but the key part that I want to bring up this afternoon is that what allowed me or gave me the confidence, the resolve, to continue on and to earn my degree in orientation and mobility when, by and large, the the profession was very much against me. It was the faith that other blind people had in me. Blind people believed in me. Blind people encouraged me. They told me that what I was doing was reasonable that we needed to expand the kinds of jobs that blind people could do. 
That sustained me. I was young. I was 21 years old. I had an entire profession thinking that I was some sort of troublemaker, that I was being unrealistic, that I would be putting my students in danger. I don't say this to criticize or condemn any of the people who opposed my training, but what allowed me to sustain was the support of other blind people. As we look at leadership, we need to find opportunities to help sustain other blind people, to help encourage other blind people. Sometimes it's through money, but it's not all about resources. It's about encouragement and belief. I went on into special education. I faced discrimination, as do most blind people, in trying to find employment. The time I applied for teaching jobs, there was a huge nationwide shortage of qualified teachers of blind children. School districts would come to the university and try to recruit people before they had graduated so that they would have contracts and be committed to going to work at that particular school system upon graduation. Every single student, they were all cited, every student in my program had multiple job offers. I had no job offers. I applied for over 30, 30 teaching jobs and received not a single job offer. Not because I wasn't qualified, but simply because of low expectations. My career began with a blind person who ran an agency for the blind, a long-term leader in our National Federation of the Blind, and he hired me. Well, subsequent to that, I've had other jobs. But when I moved to Washington in 1994, I moved to Washington to work for President Bill Clinton. And my job was to head up an agency called the Rehabilitation Services Administration, the agency that provides the bulk of the funding for employment training for adults with disabilities, not just blind people, but adults with disabilities throughout the country. While I was there, we were in the process of trying to recruit someone for a job. And there was a blind woman who came to my attention. She had a law degree, had done very well in law school. But like so many other blind people, when she finished law school, she could not find a job. At the time that I was recruiting for this position, she had been out of work, oh, at least six or eight years, maybe ten years since graduating from law school. So was she the most qualified candidate? No. There were other candidates applying who had very long resumes, lots of work experience, work experience directly related to the function of the job but I hired her anyway. Now, did I do that because I felt sorry for her? No. She had the skill. 
She had shown that she could compete and could do the kind of work that I needed to have her do. It was analytical work. She had a law degree with very good grades. Part of expanding leadership is helping others, other blind people, take that step into employment. After I left the government, this young woman has been promoted twice. The federal government has a system that goes from what they call GS1 to GS15, with 15 being the highest. She is now at the GS15 level and one of the most respected, competent people in that agency. She had the ability, but she did not have the opportunity. We have to help one another gain access to jobs that will develop their leadership potential. So in closing, I would say again, if blind people are going to go into leadership positions, you have to be prepared. You need those good blindness skills that Karen spoke about. You need to have the right kind of preparation, training in whatever skill area or if it's academic qualifications. You need to have those credentials. But also you need to have in your own mind, heart, and spirit the belief that you are just as worthy and just as capable as anyone else. And what sustains that, what nourishes that, is the support of other blind people. This is something each of us in this room can do, whether we have resources or no resources. We can find and encourage blind people, help support them to unlock not only their own potential, but by so doing, to expand opportunities for blind people everywhere. That is a quick summary of my story, and of course there are so many pieces that are left out, but, and I don't really mean to end on a, on a negative note, but I will tell you this. When I was working for President Clinton, this was a position appointed by the President, and it required confirmation by the Senate of the United States. And I was on an airplane one time, and I was talking to a stranger in the seat next to me, and he asked me, he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I run a federal agency. And he was absolutely astounded. And he said, but what does the agency do? And I said, well, we provide funds for job training for people with disabilities. And he said, oh, oh, I understand. Well, he didn't say it, but what I'm sure went through his mind is, oh, not, real, not a real job, a disabled job. Oh, I see how a blind person could do that. Yes, we get marginalized. And I don't say that with bitterness or with anger, but I, I think it is a reality. And it is a big part of our challenge around the world to help nurture the ability in blind people, sustain their confidence and encourage them, and to the degree that we control hiring opportunities to actively look for blind people, not as tokens, not just putting some unqualified person in just to have 
just to have filled the slot with a blind person, but looking for people who may not have the long resume because of the discrimination they have faced, but they have the skills and they have the drive and they have the ability. Thank you, Madam Chair. Dr. Fred Schroeder making some remarks at the World Blind Union General Assembly last Monday. That just about wraps up another edition of the Blind Side podcast. We've got some great interviews planned in the coming weeks. So thank you for downloading us. And I hope you'll continue to spread the word on our behalf. Word of mouth is a wonderful thing. And you can also get in touch with the podcast. You can either attach an audio file to an email message. If you'd like to contribute something that could be included on the podcast, that'd be fun. Or you can just write something down. In either case, the email address is theblindside, that's all joined together, theblindside at mosin.org. That's theblindside at mosin.org. And speaking of mosin.org, what a busy time here at Mosin Consulting as we approach the release of iOS 10, the latest offering from Apple, which has got a lot of great new features. And I have to say, as somebody who has expressed a bit of concern in the past about the deteriorating quality of Apple's offerings in terms of stability, it does look like iOS 10 is shaping up to be a pretty stable release at the onset. So that's very encouraging indeed. And also tvOS 10 is coming out. This is the operating system for the Apple TV fourth generation. Now, if you have purchased the maintenance plan, the, the free updates plan until December for the Apple TV fourth generation book, then when tvOS 10 is released, you will get that free update that you paid for. Lots of new things to tell you about, including a new remote app so that you can even use Siri from your iPhone or iPad. That's actually using Siri on the Apple TV from your iDevice, which is pretty nice. A number of new voiceover functions, a whole bunch of things in this update that will be released when tvOS 10 is released. And of course, iOS 10 without the i, the fourth in our popular iOS without the i series will be released on iOS 10 release day. If you would like to pre-order that, you can do that now by heading over to mosin.org slash iOS 10. That's mosin.org slash iOS 10. And whew, I don't think I've pushed too many wrong buttons. Nothing's blown up yet. So maybe I'll be back with you with this mixer board next week for another edition of the Blindside podcast. You just never know. Oh, no. Nobody told me this mixer came with a hyperspace control. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.